Why is it we humans get romanced by complexity when the answers can be found at a simple and practical level? This is the Simply Practically Human podcast, where the human manager, Mark Labasque, features experts who have a track record in humanizing workplaces, using simplicity and practicality as their go-to approach. It's all about getting back to what it is to be human and watch workplaces thrive rather than just survive. Hey there, it's Mark Labusque for the Simply Practically Human podcast. And uh, a question that I think will come up for all of you as you listen to this episode today, as it did for me, is who are you? Yeah, just that question, like who really are you? And uh, today in this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Erica Jacoby, who is the CEO of LC Global, a, um, a an organization that works in change, growth and innovation consulting based in New York City and also in Munich. Erica grew up in Germany. And we get into a topic which I think we don't speak a lot about in the corporate world because we get caught up in talking about culture. We get caught up in talking about agility. But Erica is an expert in understanding identity and identity from a individual level, from a group level, from an organizational level, from a country level. And today she's going to share some of her research, but also some amazing, simple and practical tips on what you can do, particularly in times of crisis, to truly understand what's happening with your identity and building the agility to be able to change that identity to suit the situation. A very simple example she gave today without giving too much away, and you'll be able to resonate with this, is what restaurants have had to do in the COVID times. Even the fancy five-star restaurants becoming takeaway places. Like, just think about that for a minute. Who were they and who are they now? So today, we're going to get right into this whole idea of what can you do to challenge your identity, challenge your narrative, and also create the agility in yourself to come out of this crisis, perhaps in a bit of a different way with a different identity. Very, very hard work to do because we get caught up on who we are and and how we turn up, but you're going to find some amazing things out from someone who is one of the world experts in this space. Sit back, have a listen, take some notes, enjoy, and yeah, listen to Erica's amazing thoughts on identity. Today, I'm delighted to be joined all the way from New York City by Dr. Erica Jacoby, the CEO of LC Global Consulting Incorporated. It's a change, growth and innovation consulting firm based out of New York City and also Munich. Erica, thanks for joining me. Mark, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, listen, today's topic, which I think is fascinating, is getting into this idea of business agility and identity in the times of turmoil and crisis. But Before we really get into this, uh, we've had a chat and I'm trying to understand if you could tell us a little bit more about what this identity piece is, because we sort of know about culture, we know about agility, but how would you define identity? That's a great question. And I wanted to joke and say, I'm so happy that you find it a fascinating concept because most people find it difficult and challenging (laughs) and a little bit too complex, right? What is identity? We do know what culture is, but do we really always know what what identity is, and even with with culture, we were struggling, right? So here's how I define it, and I've done research around the topic quite a bit. For me, 
identity is the one thing that defines you. I always compare it to, it's a little bit of a dark comparison, but let's say a house burns down and then we have uh, burned corpses and we can't identify them any longer. You just take one cell, one hair or whatever, and people can construe your entire identity. The thing that stays the same over time, they can construe that and that's your identity in a physical sense, right? And in terms of your inner life, it's still the one thing that defines who you are. So for me, also when we talk about collective identity, I would say it's the sense of who we are. And the crux of it is while we're talking about agility and crisis and so on, I just said it's the one thing that stays the same period over time. And yet agility is exactly the opposite or innovation is exactly the opposite. There we redefine things. And in a crisis, we need to adapt and we need to change. And in my eyes, we also, and in particular, need to change our sense of who we are or else we will not be able to adapt to a crisis and come out of it in a better way. I really like that example of, even though it's a bit morbid, the, the burnt down house with the corpses in there and the and that single <laughs> cell. I think that's a great way to explain it. Just on crisis and, and that identity and agility at the moment, you're based in New York City, which, you know, became the the global hotspot for the pandemic. I'm wondering if maybe before you talk a bit about your research, just if you could share with us what have you noticed happening in in New York City in that right in that sort of time where there was you know thousands of deaths a day and numbers climbing? What did you notice around people's identities and what was going on? Well, yes, I mean it's for sure sad times, right? And it's also difficult and challenging times. Uh, right now in New York, we're seeing the the better side of it, where the numbers are stable. Thank God, we for sure seen what I always think might compare to a war. You know, I mean, people being buried in Central Park is no joke. Uh, people ending up in cold trucks uh, because we do not have any space left to bury them. Nurses traumatized in, in hospitals. That's for sure not the identity that you would think of when you think of New York City, right? It's for sure sad, sad times, and we're, we're, we're learning our way out of it, where we're failing forward, right? So, which, which I think is a good thing. In terms of identity, of course, I, I am biased with my research. I do think identity plays a role with many things, like not only in New York, but maybe also in America and other places of the world. You know, it, it's the country of the free, and now we have to wear masks or else we might die. And people might have a hard time with that because that's what they might perceive as their identity. And that's where I would say precisely that's the time where we really need to redefine what freedom really means and whether a mask cannot even only give us freedom much more than in the ways we used to construe freedom before. So that's just a tiny example. It's, of course, also highly politicized and, and polarized. It's just a tiny example. But the way I personally make sense out of New York during this crisis, for a while, I was personally really super sad. 
because yeah. I felt like not only have I lost the work environment or how I do my work, uh, not only have I lost my favorite hobby, tango dancing, not only have I lost the opportunity to meet friends regularly, but deep down, I also felt like I have lost an entire city and I call the city home and I call the city home because of a very deliberate choice. I moved here because I thought this is the most innovating city in the world. You know, the city has a buzz, it has a drive. And then all of a sudden, nobody even goes outside any longer. So I yeah. felt like I had lost all of that. And then maybe my own concept helped me a little bit through this because I thought like, what does New York really stand for? We, we've had 9-11, sadly. So we, we've the 90s are a totally different New York than the 2020s. So then I thought, like, if I re redefine who we are in New York during this crisis, then I came to realize that actually, as New Yorkers, we are about change. We change, you know, as, as Governor Cuomo said, New York tough, New York love, New York discipline. So we change. We're actually capable of changing our identity and going from one of the most vibrant cities in the world to still being able to redefine ourselves. And if you saw New York right now, we have scooters, what we call micro transportation. We have outdoor dining. Uh, we have this, that, and the other. And as someone said, it's a totally new New York and it is. But for me, if I were to define the one core that makes New York, New York, it's the capability to adapt, right? And then yep. so in a way, my own concept helped me overcome my own sadness over that perceived loss and transform. So that's fantastic. What a fantastic share. And look, there's no better person to talk about identity because you've done some phenomenal research into this whole thing. So please share with us a little bit about that research that helps you to make sense and will help others to make sense, I think, of what they're going through at the moment. Yeah, so... For my doctoral dissertation, I was particularly interested in the, our collective identity. And I think I've had that concept early on, uh, already as a child. I have a German family, and I also parts of my family are Greek. And I always noticed that depending on which family you would go to, that things are construed yeah, a little bit differently from family to family. And I'm sure many of us have similar examples. It was just particularly obvious with those different cultures also, right? And as an adult, I would become, I always say Mrs. Change, Growth and Innovation would go to really, really big companies and small companies and help them through their change processes. And I noticed early on that Every company has its own vibe. Uh, you make it through the door and you immediately feel that vibe and you know what that company stands for very quickly. So my question was, how do successful, and I now want to say organizations because it could be a company, but it could also be a country. It could also be a team. It could also be a, a romantic relationship. How do successful organizations construe their identity and so I linked my previous career and master's in cognitive linguistics with my current field of organizational development and change and analyzed 
identity claims where, where people in an emergent language, in spontaneous language, talk about their sense of who we are as a collective. And there is also a little bit of an alignment question behind that. So deep down, my question was like, how much thought homogeneity is there and how much thought diversity is there around the sense of how we define who we are? And I had come up with a hypothesis saying like in successful organizations, it's probably 60% aligned and then 40% is totally diverse because, yeah, I believe in innovation so much. So I thought there would be less alignment and more diversity. And I did find out that in those self-described successful companies that I was working with or that I was analyzing, there was 80% of homogeneity in the sense of how we talk about ourselves. And this was very emergent and spontaneous language. People didn't even know that this was going to be used for research on identity. They were talking about different things. So my first question was like, how often do people actually talk about who we are when they're not being asked about these questions? And then how aligned is it across speakers, like across members of the organization that may have never met People were off-site, on-site, and I had no means of knowing how often people had met. But my findings were like that these successful participating companies, A, had a very distinguishable cognitive type. You could really see this is the way they think as a collective. And that was noticeably different from other companies. So they all had a cognitive type. And then... They had a vast alignment as how they would describe themselves, even down to cognitive patterns and sometimes also verbiage. But for 20%, it was totally agile, totally innovative. I, I always say very often even the opposite of what was being said before. And for me, that's really cognitive agility. And... I know, Mark, you and I, we talked about this before, and you said, oh, I'm the disruptor, I'm the 20%. And just to put a frame around this, this was not that it was 20% individual people that were sort of not towing the party line. This was in individuals that they could construe their sense of who we are in different ways. And it was aligned in individuals by 80%. And it was like very often the complete opposite in those 20%. And that's what I found fascinating because that's where I think what I call creative tension can arise. And a very easy question is like, if you think of yourself or your company as XYZ, we're, we're number one in innovation. My question would be, could the opposite also be true? <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that uh, it's interesting, you know, because you just, we have had a couple of conversations outside of here, which have been great for me because you've challenged me on a few things and helped me to understand that you're not 100% that thing that you think you are. You'd have a, there'd be a combination, but we'll get into creative tension shortly. Talk to us a little bit more about your backstory though, because, you know, you talked about where you sort of a little bit about your roots, where you grew up, the tango dancing and some other things. Let's hear a little bit about the human now. What can you tell us about your earlier years and sort of what you went through and what defined you? What did I go through and what defines me? Yes, I, I do think for me this 
interculturalism really defined me quite a bit. And it's something that you're not even only aware of when you grow up, right? So in my case, it was a Greek aunt. And uh, for me, of course, as a child, it was just your aunt Eleftheria, right? It was not, you don't, as a, as a child, you don't define your aunt's by she's Greek or she's that this and the other. But the older I grew, the more I was thinking, huh, I noticed in the German culture, people would do this, that, and the other. And then you would think, what would your aunt do in this situation and things like that? So I think you notice different cultures early on without thinking. It just, it comes natural. And it's also different social aspects. So I think even if you don't have various national cultures in your family, I think you will see different, maybe you have one uncle living in the city and the other in in the suburb, and I think it will be a different way of construing your life, right? So I think that defined me quite a bit, that there's always at minimum two ways of doing things, and they can be completely opposite. So that's where I think that's almost the power of paradoxes. Yes. And I think there is no one way of, of right or wrong, right? The quote unquote German way is not more right than the Greek way, right? Or, and that's just an example. It, it goes for some other examples. So I think that was very defining. And then also, you know, we have verbal language and then we have body language. So that's maybe where the dancing comes into play. And I think that's where you also notice that there are different learning types. There are different ways of learning and we can utilize them all. Uh, At one point while I was learning to dance and then kept on doing it for over over 20 years only to be stopped by the pandemic now, I literally said, my feet can think. You know, at one point you don't use your brain that much to learn this move or that. All of a sudden your body develops that own understanding of how to learn and we also know that for example trauma which is a piece of information gets stored in your body pretty much forever unless you try to change that right so we do know that the body has huge capacity for learning and unlearning which is also agility right when's it likely that you're going to be able to get back into the dancing has there been any word about that Oh, there is huge, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a very sad topic because we don't think we can come back anytime soon, right? So, and it does take two to tango and uh, it's also <laughs> a very close, we, we, we dance in close embrace, that's what we call it. And so it's difficult to do, that would be quite a paradox to do close embrace six feet apart, right? <laughs> <laughs> hey, so listen, let's get into from the business perspective now. So, We've heard about culture. We've heard about agility, not so much about identity. Perhaps share with us a bit about why is it important for businesses to start to embrace this understanding of of what you've described so far, of this thing called identity. Why will it be important for them to start to embrace that as a concept for business success? I know I'm biased, but I think it's very important. And I, I can use the pandemic as an example. So if we go back to how I also in my dissertation defined identity, it's the sense of who we are. And I broke it down into what we do, how we do what we do, 
what we can be in the future and how we know we belong. And I think these are the aspects that make or break your identity. And if you think of the pandemic, for example, what it forced us to change, it really forced us to change our identity. The culture might still be the same. Our innovation drive might still be the same. But what if all the avenues you use to get to that are simply closed? What if I, I talked to a pharmaceutical company today that said, how are we going to sell? We can't go to the hospitals any longer. We can't do this, that, and the other. And um, that's really how we do things, right? And that is not so much part of our culture. The culture can be how aggressively we sell or uh, how relationship-oriented we sell, or this, that, and the other. That's culture. But if all of a sudden our avenues that we use to sell are closed, I think that has gone into the collective identity quite a bit. And then when we're forced to change that, sometimes we're totally uh, paralyzed, really, yeah. really paralyzed. And in shock, I want to compare it to grief. And then we need to make sure that we get out of this grief. And that doesn't happen with cultural things quite as much as with identity things, because identity is really our core. And the crux of it is really, it's supposed to be the thing that stays the same. And then guess what? That doesn't happen. And I could give you many, many more examples of, of where businesses, for example, let's say, you have a five-star restaurant in New York City and all of a sudden nobody can go to your place any longer. And so a five-star restaurant had to do takeout. <laughs> you know, here's one for identity. I think it has nothing to do with culture, but it's really can you as an owner, for example, or as an entire team really overcome the fact that now forget about your five stars or reinvent it one way or another, right? So that's another example. Or how we go to the dentist, all of these things. They're fantastic examples. And even to, you know, going to the dentist, the five-star restaurant, interestingly, if you think, if I think about identity here from the perspective of our top restaurants here in Melbourne, and we're, we're in lockdown again at the moment, how have they changed their identity? There's a group of them that have got together. And what they've done is they're actually on a Friday night, they're running cooking classes online and they're getting like four and 500 people signing up each week to learn from a top chef how to prepare a meal. And that's a great example. You just said before about what you're known for or what you're known as. So in this time, you know, I know it's impacted me. We've had that conversation about not getting out and being in the room simple and practical tips for listeners here at the moment around people who are having an identity crisis at the moment. And as someone who's an expert in this field, and I'm going to say one of the world's experts in this field, Erica, what would you suggest to people who are going through this? Who am I now? What? How do they work through that? There are no easy answers, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> It's a process, right? And in that process, most uh, if your identity is impacted, most likely we will also have to go through a phase of grief. My number one tip would be when these things strike, and they will, and I think I don't want to sound as the bad messenger or whatever else, but I, in all likelihood, things like this can strike us much more often in times of our volatility. 
then they're hitting us now. So I don't think it's necessarily going to get better. It can get much worse even, right? So what do we know? So all I'm saying is when sort of life hits you with its ups and downs and crazy turns and you find yourself really struggling, whether as a business, uh, as a business owner, as a team or as an individual person, I would almost predict that you will feel a certain sadness And then the question is, do you want to admit to it or not? And I would always say, lean into that sadness, lean into these emotions. That's what I also call, or the literature calls emotional agility. And that's cultural, for example. Let's not just say, oh, oh, let's use this opportunity for doing this, that, and the other. No, we have to feel the pain first so that we can learn from it. I always think the pain and the fear sort of show the way where to go, right? So I would really say, let's lean into these emotions and really feel them and ask the question, what do these emotions actually tell me about myself? What is my personal understanding of who I am? What do I think makes me me? And uh, I would also really love to go into your example that you once have given me in a bit. So once we're there and we can really say, okay, that's what I think about myself. That's so important. Then I also understand the sadness that it's not there any longer. And then I can say, wow, I've just learned something about myself. And now the circumstances have changed. And now I can really say, okay, how can I use that information and replicate that into a different world, into different circumstances, all of these things. I would really, I hope I'm not throwing you a curveball here, but Mark, you once mentioned a great example while we were having our pre-conversations. You said to me, almost like, hey, coach me a little bit. I believe this and that. I think... Let's talk about it. Absolutely. So my issue is... And I go to it March the 13th when the shitstorm hit here in a big way and, and, you know, the diary emptied out. Predominantly my work, as people who know me will know, is face-to-face, human-to-human, as as a lot of your work has been. And, yeah, I had the moment of woe is me and it was like having a pity party and feeling sorry for myself but also at the same time resisting it in a way that I was like, stuff it, I'll just wait till it gets better and I'll be back out in the room again. And I was explaining that and you were like, all right, now you asked me a few questions, which really got to the crux of what was going on for me and my identity, which I I didn't see that. So do you want to talk a bit about that? If I if I have your permission, right? Absolutely. Sensitive information, right? But I think you were sort of saying, Erica, this is so difficult because I was always the person in the room and now I can't go out there any longer and I can't be with my clients any longer. And I said to you with a smile, just like now, I said, Mark, I don't buy that. Yep. <laughs> because if we're honest, uh, especially consultants and coaches can actually coach quite well via zoom or all the other all these other platforms so i said to you i don't fully buy that what is it really really that you're missing that you think defines who you are so much that you think you have to wait it out until the circumstances change and at one point i think you said i want to be the best and the smartest person in the room and then we sort of went through that and transformed that a little bit 
But at one point, you also really said, for me, it's very, very important to go outside the house, to leave the house, right? And once we know this a little bit more, my, my number one advice is also once people know this is what I think defines me, I have my favorite question, is this really true? Yep. Or is it something else that we're actually talking about? So there's usually the, the narrative that we have about ourselves that sometimes also almost camouflages what we are really about and what we're really grieving about, the loss that we experience. But once we are there, then we can try and replicate that, right? Then yeah. we can try replicate it in other ways, change it, define it, or we can also use our cognition and our sense making for understanding aha uh -huh, i truly miss this right now and unfortunately if it's complete lockdown i cannot leave the house but for example for me it was also very traumatic to not be able to, to leave the house without fear yeah uh, that was for me the scariest part that i thought like of course i can still go out but i am really afraid all of a sudden i was afraid of people and i thought that's unknown for me and I thought to myself that I had coupled my I'm the big businesswoman I'm the dual business owner and visit all these great companies and things like that I had coupled my being a businesswoman with getting dressed for the occasion with putting makeup on and with wearing high heels and going out there and I was about to say ready to kill right <laughs> to kill it <laughs> To kill it in business, right? And then once I had identified that, I even sometimes wore the same things at home just to get into the same mood. Or I would say, come on, Erica, do you really need this to identify as a businesswoman? Or can you not pull the same knowledge, expertise, experience off without those relatively superficial things and the answers and that's the thought diversity that's what i call cognitive agility the answers would change from day to day so you don't have to settle you, you don't have to say oh now i'm always going to do this and it's different than before that's where the flexibility comes in and, and going back to your original question what can we do in such a crisis i do think to have such an identity agility yeah it's just dynamite <laughs> sorry I, I, no 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 please i think first of all thank you i remember when we had that conversation a couple of weeks ago and and literally and this is what we call it you called my bullshit at the time you were like no i'm not buying that shit from you i take it as a compliment <laughs> and and so you should because this is in essence the work that is important that we can do with our clients as well but if you're not calling your own bullshit how can you do it with others? And what I heard is perhaps another tool and a tip for people here is that you need to get under the surface of your narrative that says that this is who you are. You need to go deeper than that to truly get to it, which I'm going to say is uncomfortable work to do for people because they build a an identity of who they are. And, you know, the simple thing that you said to me of I'm not buying that, what else is going on, actually unlocked the whole thing for me, which is, I've lost the sense of being able to get out, to be outside my my fence as I'm looking out through my window now, outside my fence. And that's the thing for me that's sort of at the moment making me feel like I'm caged and losing an identity that 
I'd build over some time. So for the people who are listening to this, it's like get underneath that easy story you tell yourself and go underneath and find out what's going on. What would be another thing that people should be thinking about? You sort of talked about lean into your grief and your pain to learn, get underneath your narrative and understand what's really going on. What would be a third thing that people could learn from? I think you almost described it. So if I wanted to put terminology around it, and this sounds a little weird, but I still think it works. Get into a dialogue with your narrative. And believe it or not, psychologists would actually perceive this as healthy if you can still get in touch with, this is my sense of who I am. And then let's challenge that. Let's challenge that belief. I have another example. You know, you asked me about my childhood and everything. For example, my, my uncle, very, very sadly and tragically so, he was walking all his life and all of a sudden from one second to the other, he became paralyzed from the waist down. And I'm sure he had the narrative about himself. He defined himself as someone who was walking and then life through the most horrible curveball at him that you can imagine, right? And then you need to, you can get stuck in this. And I mean, there is always that moment and in these cases, year of grief about something that you've lost. But at one point, you need to really identify who you are by what you can bring to the table now and then create, in my eyes, a dialogue around it. There is also this fantastic motivational speaker whose name I sadly forgot right now. I'm sorry, I'm not good with names. But there is this fantastic motivational speaker that does not have a single limb. Yes, I know who you, uh, yep. And he does fantastic work. He goes to schools and says, I can define myself over what I don't have. It's easy to do. I don't have two arms. I don't have two legs. Or I start looking into what do I have and what do I want to do with what I have? And I once saw a video, the school kids started crying that's how moved they were by his example. And I think that's a wonderful way of how to transform these narratives. It's very important to grieve the loss. And in fact, if we don't do this, I think we're not capable of having this agility, right? But then at one point, we can really say, okay, what do I think defines me? And how can I challenge that? And then... That doesn't have to be that one other thing. It would be good if there was really a dialogue between many, many other things. That's where the agile part comes in. That's where the identity agility comes in. So that you have choices, right? Identity, ironically, is also about having a choice or at least the agility around your identities, having a choice. And then once you have these choices, what do I want to do with that? What do I want to do with that? And then you will find out that the sky is the limit. That's where innovation resides. And we always talk about identity, which is a very big and complex topic. But I also think it goes for many, many other beliefs as well. I also think I perceive this as a crux of our time a little bit, that we are so often pulled into polarization so 
whether it's we have two parties and then we think this one is always right and this one is always wrong. That's not agility. That's polarization. And it, as a society, it doesn't help us very much to ever get towards innovation that we can create something new. That's one example. If we think of our companies or the company we work for as we are number one in the world and then one day we wake up and we're not number one in the world any longer and then we're busy grieving. And so another advice that I can also give before the worst things happen, practice that kind of identity agility beforehand because it can also guide you the way into innovation. Yep. If I think, how else could I construe myself I automatically also think of changed or changing circumstances. And that's what we need to create new things. And that's where our synopses, that, that our, our learning path is in our brain, sort of limit that and make us believe there is nothing else. It has to be that way. And then we're hit by a crisis. So the best advice and the best and most honest advice I can give as someone who is in the space of innovation is to practice this kind of identity agility before the worst happens. And I think practice is, is a great thing. I think we're going to have to do another episode around polarization because we've talked about that before. This thing that's going on in the world today that you're either in this camp or in this camp and there's nothing in between, which leads me to the, the other thing that I'm, I, I am really, really curious about that you talk about, the importance of creative tension in organisations. So, you know, it's interesting when you work with clients and, and they get into that space where they're starting to talk about what I call the known unspokens and the room is warming up. It's starting to get into the tension and breakthroughs and then they sort of step away from it. Why is creative tension, that sort of 20%, so important for organisations to become successful? Because if it weren't 20% that were different, we would have 100% alignment and with all due respect, that's the death of all innovation. That's the death of all change. And historically, we've had horrible examples around how that can happen. And it's very important to understand that one little detail of my research, that it was not 80% were aligned and 20% of the human beings were different, right? Because then everybody wants to be the one who's different which is a strange narrative that we also have. You know, many consultants uh, or many CEOs, we, we're, we always want to be the ones that are hipper and better and more innovative. We never think that we could actually be the lamest person in the game, right? So <laughs> we're talking about narratives that we construe as consultants and business owners and team players and whatever else, right? So the tension, the creative tension came from being able to challenge your own beliefs, and that without knowing even. Stephen Hawkins once said, he explained his research, which is way more complicated and better than mine. And then he explained the theory, which was very, very impressive and, and this, that, and the other. And then someone said, wow, this is so great. Now I get it. And then he said, wait till you read my next book, I totally say the opposite in my next book, and that's agility. And that's where innovation neither needs to be true, can be true, 
But from there, we can create new ideas. The big takeout for me there is, and, and again, this is like for me, it's lessons from Erica that, I, that I've been getting, which is terrific, is you're not just the different guy. That might be a lovely narrative you've created for yourself, but you can be a bit different, but you can also be aligned as well. And it's important that, that you understand both of those things. Let's talk a little bit about simplicity and complexity. I have this idea that for some reason, human beings like to get romance by the flame of complexity, coming up with the next big thing and the big idea when even some of the things you're talking about today, while there's a level of complexity behind them in the research, there's some simplicity in some things you said, like feel into your pain, challenge your narrative, understand who you are. Why do you think human beings, if you do think this, why do you think they they sort of shy away from the simple stuff and go for the complex? I'm not sure whether I think it's true, right? So I think the brain is wired to decompose complexity. So for example, we're we're driving our car and, and there is a lot of things going on for our brain a lot of information hitting our our brain and then there is a red light and then your brain has no other chance but only focus on the red light and it has to in a very simple way just go into your foot and you hit the brakes right so usually we say that human beings and our brain are particularly wired to not get complexity that's why it's also so difficult to hold these paradoxes and that's why we also if you think about it create that very simple identity claim about ourselves that we then later on have to question and challenge, right? So our brain really wants to default to the very simple information, very, very simple. Why people, (laughs) I almost want to paraphrase what you said, you know, why people and companies want to make it complicated, (laughs) Yes, right? I think that has to do with Another narrative of ours, like the more complicated, maybe people don't even understand what I'm saying, and then I get away with things. That's one thing. Peter Senge once said, if you can't say it in a simple way, or if you can only say it by lecturing, people almost don't say it, then then is it really worthwhile sharing, right? But also, for example, when we go for very complex organizational moves, for example, then I sometimes think, is it change resistance? If we can't look at the simple things that need to change right now in our company, in our organization, and this, that, and the other, then I think we almost don't want to do the work. And then it's better to philosophize about this, that, and the other, but that doesn't get the job done. Right. It, it just doesn't get the job done. But we, if we talk about it forever, then we don't have to change anything. That absolutely resonates. I often say to people who are looking to go through change, sometimes those who say they want to change the most are the ones that want it the least. And they get into that what they call the skillful art of work avoidance by creating complications and maybe using language that people don't understand. And yeah, I, I actually think paraphrasing it, absolutely makes a lot of sense. Hey, um, let's finish up on you and where people find you. And and also, are you in the process of writing a book at the moment? Is that right? I am, yes. Yeah. So that's exciting. So there'll be a book coming out. When will that land, do you think? 
it's right now. I think that industry is also a little bit in a crisis. So the, the truthful answer is, I have absolutely no idea. But the book <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure it's going to be within the next year or so. But that's an industry where where people work reduced hours as well, and yep. where to print the book, you you need to have people in warehouses and and so on. So um, that's a little bit uncertain. Where can people find you then? If they wanted to know more about what you do in your work and maybe some of the research you've done, what's the best place to go? Yeah, maybe the, the easiest way is to check our company website out. The company is called LC Global Consulting, Inc. The LC stands for Leadership and Change. And our website here in the US is www.lc-global-us.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, and I never shy away from conversations, so just look me up. My research is published in my, in my dissertation. I always say don't read it. It's, <laughs> you know, dissertations are not written to be read. It's wait till the book comes out, right? I think there are easier ways of saying things than you would have to in a dissertation so don't read the dissertation <laughs> so there you go so there's 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 a narrative going on for you in that in itself but hey thanks for coming on and i certainly i think one of the things that appealed to me to get you on here we met i'd say maybe in the last couple of months on through that drinking dialogues coffee cocktail session that they run out of hong kong and and one of the things that really struck me about you was that you do enjoy a conversation and and i was really struck by how you were able to articulate I'm going to say some complex things in a very, very simple way. So I, I say thank you for that. I say thank you for the free coaching that you've given me in the last few weeks as well. Um, and it's been wait for the bill. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on uh, the Simply Practically Human podcast. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It was absolutely wonderful talking to you as always. It's not often that you actually get some free coaching, although. Erica did say she would. there's an invoice going to be in the mail to me. So uh, one of the things I love about Erica when I met her about 12 weeks ago through a curated group who just get together each week and talk about all sorts of different topics, no one's right, we just share our perspectives, is that she's very upfront. And, uh, you know, she knocked me back on my ass a couple of weeks ago when I was telling her a story of my identity and what I'd lost in this COVID time of being out in front of the room and being the sort of the guy of the center of attention. And she told me, I don't buy that for one minute. And I think that was a really, really good lesson for me to get below that, to truly understand what was going on. Some of the things she said today, who are you? What do you have rather than what don't you have? The ideas of feeling the pain and of the grief that you're going through at the moment, potentially with this time of crisis is not to try and just paper over the cracks of that, but just to feel into it because that's where the real learning starts to happen. The other idea that this idea that we need to get underneath the stories that we create, these stories, these narratives that we've created forever about who we are, when if we scratch under the surface of those and go a bit deeper, there'll be a true story in there that's really going on. And using that story and using those narratives to challenge them and then create something new. And the other thing I really liked was the idea that we need creative tension and, and all human beings have a level of creative tension in them. And this idea that when people say I'm different, I'm a disruptor and all this sort of stuff, yep, there's some merit in that, but there's also uh, something in there that says you're not just that, 
you're also aligned as well. So we want a combination of alignment and some creative tension across a group in order for the agility to occur and our identities to be able to shift to where they need to be in order to be successful. Hey, if you like this episode, why not rate it five stars? And if you loved it, share it with your friends. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical, and keep it human. Bye for now.